I would like for you, even at home, to read this together with me. Verse 16, uh, Exodus chapter 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, doers, or doers of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You know, there was a uh, recent television uh, series on HBO that was based on a real-life tragedy, and it was given high praise. And, and the name of the series was, the Chernobyl, uh, was simply Chernobyl. Um, the, the series is based on the real-life tragedy of the explosion at the Chernobyl uh, nuclear power station in 1986. It is still considered, by the way, one of the worst nuclear disasters in the history of the world. And still, there are many people who know little about it. One of the nuclear reactors exploded in April of 1986. I believe it was April leaving untold damage and killing many people, both uh, uh, initially killing people from the explosion itself, but then later from the exposure to the radiation. Even years later, people suffered and died from radiation exposure. Um, the, 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 the docu the, the, well, it's not a documentary, but it's more like a retelling, so there's some embellishments here and there, but, but it tells the story of scientists and engineers and, and, and operators who worked to try and contain the disaster and stop something from uh, even worse from happening. And so it, it is chronicling um, the, the point from the actual explosion and then the aftermath of that. And the most notable element in this story is the ability for lies to cause so much pain and destruction. There literally were lies before the explosion, during the explosion, and after the explosion. And all of those lies cost people their livelihood, and it cost people their health, and it cost people their strength, and ultimately it cost many people their lives. Pre-explosion, for example, there were lies told about or around the safeness of the RB, RBMK-1000 reactor. That was the type of reactor that exploded at the nuclear plant. The reactor was catastrophically unsafe. And some scientists even raised concerns about the danger and the lack of safety and the lack of real necessary protocols surrounding the reactor. But they were ultimately dismissed, and, and, and because of the major, the, the, they were dismissed because of the major inconveniences and ultimately costs that would be associated with addressing the issues that needed to be addressed in the reactor. In the midst of the explosion, there were lies about the actual scale of the explosion and the damage caused by the explosion. For example, the local townspeople um, initially um, went back to work. There was an explosion, and the, and the townspeople just kind of went back to work and did their thing, attended to their business, not even aware of what really had transpired and the, and the tragedy that was about to unfold before their very eyes. However, shortly after the explosion, many people in the town began to feel sick. Many people in the town began to have violent episodes of coughing and vomiting not even knowing really what was going on and not being warned about what was going on. Why? Because they were trying 
to protect the first lie. After a day and a half um, from the initial blast, the order was finally given to evacuate the town. They said initially the evacuation would be just three days. Those folks never would go back to that town. It's been hopelessly poisoned. It took another day and a half before the Soviet government even acknowledged that the explosion took place. In fact, the Swedish government was the first to raise concern because at one of their nuclear plants, 600 miles away, they began to detect abnormal amounts of radiation. And as they began to investigate and they discovered it wasn't at their plant or anywhere, anywhere near their plant, they began to inquire and they reached out to the Soviets to say, hey, is there something going on at your nuclear plant? They denied it, of course, and they said, no, 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 there's nothing going on. Again, lying and lying. And it got to the point where they, 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 they couldn't lie anymore because the, Swede, the Swedish government was saying, hey, we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna send some people there. We're going to start, we're going to announce this if you guys don't tell us what's going on. Lie after lie after lie. And each lie, I'm sure, was told in order to make the situation better, to stop the bleeding of this widening gash of a problem. But every lie, from the safety protocols to the nature of the explosion, to the reach of the radiation, to the impact of the explosion on its citizens, only made things worse. The TV has this climatic speech by one of the scientists that in some ways captures the whole catastrophe and destructive nature associated with lies. He said this, what is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognize the truth at all. What can we do then? What else is left but to abandon even the hope of truth and content ourselves instead with stories? End quote. Here's what we know about lies. They don't make things better. They only end up harming the people that they are intending to protect. And each one requires another one to keep it from being exposed until ultimately you are no longer even able to recognize the truth. In fact, you are no longer living in truth. You're living in stories. These are the stories that many of us, even this morning, are living in. We're living in stories as it relates to our relationships. We're living in stories as it relates to the people that we present ourselves online, as online in our social media profiles. We're living in stories as it relates to the person that we are at church versus the person that we are at home. We're living in stories as it relates to the person that we are on our jobs. The person, even the person that we are at home may, in fact, be a story. You know, this is not an easy command to dive into because it is such a convicting command. And it is such an accessible command. I mean, we, we, we have to dive deep to see where we are guilty of stealing, and we have to dive deep to see where we are guilty of murder, but we don't have to dive deep to see where we are guilty of lying. In fact, some social scientists have said that people on average tell two to three lies in every 10-minute conversation that they have. 
Others have pointed out that, that we are lied to as many as 200 times a day. And that number was before Twitter and before Facebook. So who knows how much we are lied to right now? This is not an easy command to dive into because it is such a common sin for us. However, it is precisely because of its commonness that we should dive deeper into understanding the nature of the sin, the importance of the, of, of the command, the nature of the command, and ultimately how to become the kind of people that better embody the command. That's what I want to talk about this morning, the nature, the importance, and how to become better people that embody it. Look at verse 16 again. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's first notice the fact that although most of us, including myself through the years, have summarized this command as do not lie, this is not exactly what it says. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's helpful for us if we spend just a little time unpacking why does it say that instead of just simply saying do not lie. After all, it says do not, do not murder. It says do not steal not commit adultery, but it doesn't say do not lie. It says do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Why does it say that? There's a lot for us to ponder here, but first the command is setting a scene for us. The immediate context and the application for this commandment is the courtroom, in fact. Back in those days, the art of investigation was a little fuzzy. There was no fancy equipment to uncover blood there was that, that had been previously cleaned up at the scene of the crime. There was no fingerprint machines that would kick out immediate um, matches of people in a database. There was no DNA examinations. Investigations were primitive and personal. Obviously, the witness was one of the most important elements in a criminal case. But in the Old Testament period, they were at a whole other level of importance. Now, as Tim Keller would say, in order to be truthful, the witness is not just responsible for speaking the truth, but he's also responsible for doing the truth. What, what, is, what does Keller mean by that? He uses, he uses an example, some examples to highlight it, but I'm, but I'm just going to use one of my own to, to highlight it. Take, for example, a case comes before the judge. And this case is about a man assaulting another man. And there, there, there happened to be an altercation outside of a nightclub that got a little contentious. Uh, two of the, both, both of the guys had had a little bit too, little bit too much to drink. And the, and the plaintiff alleges that the defendant punched him, gave him a right cross, right to the jaw. The defendant swears his innocence. I did not hit that man. I did not punch that man. And, and, and in fact, he's right. He did not punch the man. He is innocent. The court calls three witnesses to the stand. One is a friend of the defendant, but he wasn't there. He, he can only testify as one who is offering a testimony to the defendant's character. He says, this is nothing like my friend, yeah, maybe he had one too many to drink, but he has sound judgment. He's a quiet man. 
I've never seen him rage out in violence like that. I just don't think, he, I, I just don't think that's him. All right, witness one, thank you for your testimony. Witness two, the court, the court calls the other two witnesses, and these witnesses are for the plaintiff. Both of these witnesses know the truth, that this man did not hit their friend. In fact, they were there. They saw it. The first witness approaches the stand. He takes a seat, and he says, he did it, Your Honor. Yep, right cross, right to the jaw. He punched my buddy in the face. I saw the whole thing. He's lying. Right? Obviously, he's lying. Nevertheless, he exits the, the stand, and he goes and takes his seat. And the second witness comes up, and the lawyer says, um, uh, so did the defendant hit the plaintiff in the jaw? This is what the third witness says. He says, Your Honor, everything was happening so fast. But what I can tell you was that he was very angry. He was very loud. He was right in the plaintiff's face with his fist clenched. Now, here's the thing. He knows that the defendant didn't hit the plaintiff either. In fact, not only does he know that, but what he has shared, everything that he has shared is factual. The defendant was very angry. The, the defendant was very loud in that moment. The defendant was right in the plaintiff's face with his fist clenched. Everything that he shared was factual. But here's the question. Was it truthful? No, it was not truthful. You see, bearing true witness for your neighbor requires more than simply being factual. It requires saying truth and doing truth. Being truthful doesn't leave room for playing games with facts and technicalities. Well, technically, I never said he punched him. I just said that he was angry and he had his fist clenched. And no, there's no room for that. Speak truth and do truth. Leviticus 5 takes this a step further even. In verse 1 of Leviticus 5, it says, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify. And though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Do you hear that? If anyone sins in that there is a public call for witnesses, if you have seen or if you know any information about this particular crime, and you say, now, I'm not going to say anything. Then the law, according to the law, God's law, he defines that as sin. It simply means that while no snitching may be the code of the streets, it is not the code of Scripture. To know the truth about a crime committed and refuse to share that truth, even if you are not specifically called on to give that truth, is considered sin. In other words, you might not be speaking anything. So you say, well, I'm not lying, but you're not doing truth. You understand? Again, it's not just enough to speak truth in order to be considered truthful. We must do truth. That is the nature of this command. Truthfulness is not just reciting a set of facts. It is living a certain way. Now for the importance of the command. 
Another point to consider that we have to consider when thinking about this command is the fact that it introduces an object into the command. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Now, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. We're, about to, we're, 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 we're seeing in that object the importance of the command. Somebody's life hangs in the balance based on our commitment to speak and do truth. The command gives us a, a picture of a courtroom where testimony is being shared for and against one another, but it is also a clear picture of a person that will be significantly impacted by your words. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor who is hanging in the balance. As we mentioned, while we understand the importance of the witness in our day and time, we have to understand the importance of the witness in this day and time, the Old Testament day and time. It was completely and totally different. There were no tools for investigation like we have. They weren't sophisticated. There were no DNA machines. There were no, there were no fingerprint machines. And at the same time, not only did they not have the same sophistication in their investigations, many crimes carry capital punishments with them. Acts of sexual immorality, cursing or striking one another's parents, idolatry, even keeping the Sabbath. Man, I saw B outside working yesterday. That, I mean, these things were crucial. Witnesses were extremely crucial. When you, take, when you take these two truths into consideration, the fact that they did not have the sophistication, the fact that most, many crimes were capital in their punishment, you realize that witnesses held in their hands great power. They held power of life and death in their hands for their neighbors. Your commitment to the truth was often the, the, the difference in a person living and a person dying. There's no reason that the Lord had very strict commandments for witnesses in the law. In Deuteronomy 18, he talks about this idea that you shall not have just a single witness against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that's, that, that has been committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And then he says this in Deuteronomy 19. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and, his, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, whatever punishment that was assigned to the crime that the false witness was accusing his brother or sister for, or accusing his brother and sister of, that punishment now is applied to the false witness. That's the severity of bearing false witness. 
Why? Because you control literally the life of another person in your hands. You control their livelihood. If it was proven that a witness was a malicious witness, then, then they inherited the punishment that they were accusing or, the, or for the crime that they were accusing the defendant of. This is a reminder that being a truthful person is important because there are other people on the other end of our dishonesty that are impacted by our dishonesty. Literally, lives can be impacted by our dishonesty. They can be harmed. They can be even destroyed based on our refusal to live in the truth, to speak truth, and to do truth. Now, as we think about that, this court scene... This, 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 this court scene picture, as we think about that, the, command, the, the, uh, the, this, the commandment takes us to this court scene picture. Let us also remember that every single commandment that we've studied thus far is always reaching a little bit farther than we immediately see on the surface when we think about how it applies in a New Testament way. This commandment is no different. As we think again, as we have this picture of the courtroom, I want you to think about Matthew chapter 5. Here Jesus talks about lying. He talks about false witnesses. He talks about, he talks about witnesses in general. Chapter 5, verse 33 through 37, he says again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, this is not necessarily ruling out you taking an oath when you go to the courtroom. What is basically getting at the heart of this message, or the heart of Jesus' words here, extends to how one should live. You see, many of the religious folks that Jesus would have been speaking to were used to, were used to ranking their need to speak truth based on the location that they were speaking. Maybe the courtroom, for example, required a greater deal of honesty, a greater amount of honesty than the city gates when you're just kind of shooting the breeze with the fellas. Maybe the house of God, I'm in church, you know, man, I can't, I, man, I, I can't tell no lie, man, I'm in church, right? Maybe, maybe the house of God required a greater commitment to truth than my own house. I lie when I get home, but I can't lie here, right? I'm in church. See, I'll take an oath by heaven, which means I really mean business right now. You Listen to me now. I'm telling you the truth. But if I don't take that oath, well, I mean, you know, who knows if I'm telling the truth. Maybe you need to trust me, but maybe you don't have to trust me. Jesus is destroying that notion by saying this. Every place you go is God's territory. Everything you would be compelled to swear by, say, I swear by my own head, I swear by this, I swear by my mama's grave, I swear. No, every single thing that you would be compelled to swear by is God's possession. 
Everywhere you go is God's territory. Everything you would be compelled to swear by is God's possession. In other words, the concept of speaking truth and doing truth is not just for the courtrooms where serious things happen. It's not just for the, the, the church house where serious things happen because God is not confined to the courtrooms. And we will ultimately give an account to God for every single word that we speak, whether it is in church, outside of church, in court, outside of court, in our house, at our schools, at our jobs. The call to speak and do truth is for all of life since we are always before God. We are always in his courtroom. When you understand that truth is not just what we say, but it is what we do, and when you understand that the call to live in that truth is not just in a courtroom or not just in some sacred, quote-unquote, sacred place, but it is everywhere, then it will transform how you think about living a truthful life. It is more than just being technical Technically factual in serious places. It is about being the kind of witness and living the kind of life that will give your neighbor life rather than death. If the concept of speaking truth and doing truth extends outside of the courtroom, then it also makes sense that the way in which it impacts our neighbors extends outside of the courtrooms as well, right? Remember, we talked about do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Why? Because you have power in your speech for the neighbor. You can impact their livelihood. You can impact their outcomes. You can impact their very lives. Just like in the courtroom, we have the ability to harm our neighbors with our lack of truth. And we don't have to be in the courtroom to do it. Maybe there's a life possibly hanging in the balance like there was with the lies told against Emmett Till. 14-year-old African-American boy who was kidnapped, butchered, and killed while visiting his kinfolk from Illinois. Visiting from Illinois, his kinfolk in Mississippi in 1955. He was savagely beaten savagely brutalized and ultimately murdered. And why? Because of a lie. Because he had allegedly harassed a white woman, a woman who admitted just four years ago at the age of 83 that she embellished most of that story. Maybe there, maybe there are multiple lives hanging in the balance of the lies that we tell like the lies that were told at that nuclear plant in Russia. Maybe there's an entire nation hanging in the balance like our very own because there is so much disinformation circling around us today on all sides that we no longer trust anything. We trust no news sources. 
We, can't, we, felt, we, we don't feel like we can trust any news source. We don't feel like we can trust any leaders. We don't feel like we can trust anyone or anything. That is the product of lies being just injected into a culture from every side. That the culture loses the ability to trust. And when it loses the ability to trust, it is slowly moving towards its disruption and ultimately, if if nothing changes, its destruction. We don't even trust any longer the brothers and sisters that we worship with on Sunday morning if we find out what news channel they watch. Oh, I ain't know you was watching that one. Keep my eye on you from here on out. Or, may, or maybe there's a relationship in your own life hanging in the bowels that has been severed because of lies. Remember, not just statements of facts, not just technicalities, not, not just technically factual, but maybe truths that have been withheld. Maybe, maybe your false witness is that you just simply haven't told the truth. You've kept it. And now your relationships are, are being severed and being broken because you've refused to speak and do truth. Maybe you've spoken truth but haven't done truth because you said things in a way that no one would ever receive it. You know, that's what it means to do truth sometimes. Is that, is that when we speak, we're not just simply looking to blurt out whatever we feel like blurting out, but we are actually looking, remember, Bearing false witness is not just simply about speaking truth, but it is about harming neighbor, right? So when we begin to just blurt out truths, technical truths, factual truths, with no regard for how neighbor will be harmed or impacted, we are no longer speaking truth. We are just, or we are no longer doing truth. We're just simply speaking it. Maybe you've spoken truth, but you haven't done truth because you said things in a way that no one whatever receive it. Maybe you've spoken truth but haven't done truth because you've been silent and haven't said some things that needed to be said in order for you to be fully present in the relationship. You know, in all these different ways in which we operate, living these false lives, as a result of that, lives are damaged around us. Some of your relationships no longer feel real. Some of your relationships are no longer real. People haven't seen the real you in ages. Even relationships with your own children, even relationships with, with, your, with your parents, even relationships with your friends, even relationships with your spouses. Now remember, I'm not saying there isn't a proper way to share that truth. We must speak and do truth. But living a deceptive life, while it may help us cope in the moment, does, not act, does nothing, rather, to actually breathe life into these dying relationships around us with our neighbors, our family, and our loved ones. So how do we do it? How do we speak truth and do truth? Well, first, we, di- we diagnose why we are not living in it. Why do we live the lie? Why are we living the lie? There are many reasons when you think about it why we don't speak truth, why we don't do truth. In Joshua chapter 7, there was a man by the name of Achan who took 
what God called the devoted things. He took from it, and he and his and his willingness to live in that deceit. He took it, he hid it. His willingness to live in that deceit cost the lives of people around him, his own countrymen. They lost wars because he had taken things from God that God said do not take. And Joshua, in trying to find out what was going on and why things were no longer going, you know, uh, going well for them, spoke with God, and God said, you have someone in the camp that has taken the things that I told them not to take. And they began to inquire and began to investigate, and they found Achan. Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, it says, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So why do we lie sometimes? We lie because we covet. We lie so we can keep. We lie so we can take. We lie because we crave the things that are not ours, the things that don't belong to us, the things that God has not ordained for us. And we lie in order to attain these things. Why do you lie on your resume? Why do you lie on your taxes? Why do you lie on your job about the amount of overtime hours you work? You lie because you covet. That's one reason why we lie. We find another reason for lying in, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in and, 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 and Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we, the chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, but before chapter 5 and chapter 4, the, the, the end of the chapter is an apostle by the name of Barnabas who, sold, who sells a field that belongs to him and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph was his name, but they also called him son of encouragement, Barnabas. So he sells his field. And then after he sells this field, you get to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, apparently they, or Sapphira, they, 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 they've looked apparently at the, the celebration. They've looked at the people maybe encouraging Joseph, now Barnabas, and saying, oh, man, did you, see what, did you see what Barnabas did? Man, he gave, man, he sold his whole field, man, gave it to the church, man. They said, man, we should do that. Looks like he's getting a lot of publicity from this. Looks like he's getting a lot of respect from this. It looks like people are holding him in high regard. And so they sell a piece of their property and they bring the proceeds, but they bring only a part of it. And they lay that part at the apostles' feet. But they tell the apostles that just like Barnabas, we sold everything. This is all of it. And many of you know the rest of the story because they lied not only to the apostle, but the apostle says you lied to the Holy Spirit. They both dropped dead eventually. But why did they lie? Lie for identity's purpose, 
for identity's sake? How many lies have you told to make yourself look better? How many lies have you lived through on social media because you were so worried about what people would think if they knew who you really were? How many many lies have we lived in our professional lives? See, that that insecurity in our identity and who we are and and, and that insecurity and the vulnerabilities that, that, that are real in our lives leads us to do what? Leads us to make it all up. So that's, a, that's another reason why we lie, because we're scared of what people would think, so to speak, if they knew who we were. But ultimately, there's another reason, too, and that is the reason that we find in Peter. Not just simply because we're scared of what people might think, but we're literally scared for our lives. We're scared for our livelihood. Remember, Peter lies, doesn't he? Jesus in Jesus is being tried, obviously guiltless. Peter is around all of the commotion as these trials were happening. And people begin to ask Peter, hey, aren't you? Didn't you? Weren't you? Peter's like, no, I don't know the man. Never been around him. I don't know who you're talking about. Can't spell Jesus. Why? Because Peter was looking at Jesus. He knew what Jesus was about to go through. He's like, I want no parts of that. I won't be associated with that. This brother in trouble. I don't know him. We lie because of our fear of life and death and livelihood. We lie because of our coveting of other things. We lie because of our need to be affirmed by the world. Don't make no mistake about it, saints. All these lies are from the same source. They are from the devil. The Bible calls him the father of lies. We call him the great deceiver. In fact, the very, very foundation of the fall of man started with a lie. In the Garden of Eden, with everything that they could possibly need, Satan was lying to them. God just doesn't want you to be like him. Did he really say that you shouldn't eat, that you could not eat from the tree, lest you die? No, you won't die. God doesn't know what he's talking about. All these lies that we tell ourselves have one source, the enemy. In fact, what is the ultimate lie that we tell ourselves? It's the lie that we find in the garden. You don't need God. You don't need him. This is the lie that we tell ourselves every day of our lives. It's why all the other lives, all the other lies come up. It's why we need to lie for coveting. It's why we need to lie for identity. It's why we need to lie out of fear of our lives. Because we are lying to ourselves and telling ourselves that we have to do this on our own. We have to save ourselves. Family of God, that's a lie. 
Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He was the only one that lived in absolute truth. Spoke truth and did truth all the days of his life. Died the death that liars deserve to die. That all of us deserve to die for all of the lies that we have ever told. And all the lies that we have ever done. But he paid the price for that in order that you would not have to pay the price for that. And in order that you would not have to live the lie. He affirms you. You don't have to lie for, the, for, the, for affirmation. He affirms you. You don't have to lie for provision. He provides. You don't have to lie in fear of death. He's conquered death. All that's required of you is to simply embrace him in the truth of the gospel, to say, Lord, I need you. To turn and embrace him by faith. And every single time you lie, he's made provision for you. Through his death, you have forgiveness. Through through his death, you have cleansing. So in the midst of that lie, don't live in it and don't say, okay, I got to tell another one and I got to tell another one. No, turn to him. Ask for forgiveness and ask for the help and the strength by the spirit to walk in truth. Saints of God, do it not just for yourselves. Do it for your neighbors. But saints of God, do it not just for your neighbors, but do it because that's what it means to live the Christian life. That's what it means to embrace this God. It means to live in the truth that he has set aside for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you and we give you all the praise.